Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, uh, back on Zoom again today with Sue Grimmett in the office. Hey, Sue. Yeah, hey, good to be here and um, back on, on Zoom and hoping the network holds. And uh, we also have uh, Peter Cat joining us from the cathedral. Uh, hey, Peter. Good morning. It's great to be here. Look, today's podcast is one of the uh, more left of centre podcasts or left field podcasts we've done over the journey of five or so years of On The Way, and we are so excited about it. Uh, David Williams is a theologian, pastor, and science fiction author, the perfect combination for the conversation we are just about to have. Uh, His book is Christ and the Multiverse, Following Jesus in Our Wild, Infinite Creation, and he is joining us from Maryland in the US. David, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. Glad to be here, Dom. So, so, here. so look, it's a pleasure. Look, the the conversation ahead is probably going to be as mind bending as it's ever gotten on the On the Way podcast before. In a number of ways, it's possible that the intricacy and complexity of your book, David, might have broken my brain. So, I might need your help to put it back together here because you you go into some incredibly um, deep areas in in the book. Um, so we may need to go over things a couple of times here because some of the concepts are, are pretty um well they're, they're pretty mind blowing really. You kind of get the apple rainbow spinning wheel of death just thinking about any of this stuff. Um, but but to begin with, before we get into the all the stuff around the multiverse and what the idea of the multiverse or, or the various theories of the multiverse might mean. Um, from a faith perspective, can you just tell us a little bit about um, your your journey, David? Who you are, what you do, and and how you ended up being someone who who writes about the multiverse. Um, hey, David Williams. I am a uh, pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA. Um, I'm what they call a cradle Presbyterian. Um, so I've been going to Presbyterian churches um, since before I was born, since I was in utero. Um, the First Presbyterian church I remember was St. Andrews in Nairobi, Kenya, where my my father was assigned as a correspondent. Um, And uh, my home church, um, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, uh, where I grew up, um, big downtown church in D.C., stone's throw from the White House, the kind of church where you're completely used as a kid to, you know, hiding behind the original copy of the Emancipation Proclamation um, that Abraham Lincoln wrote, because it's just sitting out there and you like, it's a great place to play hide and seek. It, it's a peculiar way to grow up, I suppose. Um, in terms of my faith journey, it was fairly standard. I uh, started really struggling with faith in adolescence, had a um, watched as um, the congregation that I love was torn apart as adults started fighting about power within it, which of course is, there's nothing better for a 15 year old than watching grownups being less mature than you are about things. Um, and particularly when you view that as a sacred space of sorts. Um, so did a lot of struggling with faith in adolescence, um, returned to it as a young adult after um, I, one, missed it, but two, after a sequence of sort of mystic experiences and dreams and things that sort of led you to have a sense of existential urgency to one's return. Um, and got back engaged with the congregation where I'd grown up and found that that was satisfying, but I kept being drawn further and further into ministry and into writing um, and had always wanted to write. Um, And over the course of the last, I've been serving my current congregation for 11 years and it's just a joy. It's a beautiful little church a small community, very intimate of, you know, we're sort of about 80 members, typically about 45 in worship, but our building, when we've got 45 in it, it's packed. <laughs> it's a tiny little church in a, um, in an agricultural reserve just outside of DC, just to the north of um, the District of Columbia. So um, all around us are fields and farms and the elders and members of my congregation are just delightful, wonderful, supportive people, which is why I've had the energy to write um, 16 manuscripts in the last 11 years. Um, 
the first of which was the first version of uh, Christ in the Multiverse, um, which was published by a little ebook shop that has since folded. Um, then it was called The Believer's Guide to the Multiverse as a nod to Douglas Adams because he was a favorite. So, um, But I needed to do some rewriting and updating as I'd done more reading. Um, and so had the had the good fortune to find a, a publisher who would look at this bit of peculiar weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, because as you say, it's not, it's not exactly dead center in, um, in theological discourse at this point in time. But it is interesting, David, reading the book and, and thinking that it should be in a sense, because really the question, the, the central question of faith is what is reality? What, you know, what actually is this thing that we're all just calling life in a sense? And, uh, and that is what you explore a number of the scientific theories that have emerged in recent years um, through the course of the book. This is where things are going to maybe get a little bit complicated. And, and um, this is the sort of podcast where you might need to make sure you're on your own listening to it, not with kids in the back seat or other people around you, because it might get a bit dense in that sense pretty quickly in terms of the ideas we go through. But for those who maybe haven't seen the Marvel films those who don't have a scientific uh, background, those who aren't really into sci-fi all that much, David, I'm about to ask you a pretty impossible question, which is, can you give us a brief introduction <laughs> to the idea of the multiverse? Um, it's fairly straightforward. The idea is that um, instead of the traditional understanding that all that we perceive, all that exists around us is all that there is. There's a single linear time and space where everything tracks neatly along in a simple progressive line. Um, a multiverse and multiversality posits that there are many realities, um, that there are uh, as many realities as can possibly exist. Um, and there are a whole array of different ways that that's conceptualized. And I get into a typology of how that works in the book, but it's basically the idea of alternate universes, places where there are entirely different timelines, different Earths. And I think for a lot of young, for a lot of younger folks, this is kind of a default cosmology. Um, I mean, I think for people of my age, meaning you know, if um, you're listening, yeah, yeah, I'm 53, um, and when I was young, this concept wasn't really around except on the sidelines as a as fantasy um it wasn't something that people were generally aware of or integrated into their understanding of how the universe works we were still at the thinking about thing you're still struggling with the idea of the big bang and a linear time and space that extended out like 13.8 13.9 billion years in time that was mind-bending enough um the idea that there might be other realities, um, uh, some almost identical to our own, some almost unrecognizably different, um, really wasn't present, at least in scientific discourse as it was expressed publicly. Um, so it was and is uh, interesting, but it's the alternate universe idea. And anyone, again, you mentioned the Marvel character universe, anyone who's engaged in the MCU knows what that means in some sense or another um, as filtered through the Disney corporate lens. But still, it's, uh, you know, it's the concept is present there. Uh, but similarly, if, you know, both of my sons, when they were teens or in their 20s now, I mean, they're they're watching Rick and Morty. Um, they're the idea storytelling that has alternate universes. And, you know, even for us, I mean, old codgers like myself, you know, it's, you know, it's the, you know, you've got the mirror universe where the entire crew of the Enterprise and the Federation is evil um, for folks who watched original Star Trek. Um, and that storytelling was there elsewhere. Uh, if anyone, I, as I can see your hands if you raise them. If any, any one of you read Michael Moorcock at all? Um, is that a familiar name? No, probably not. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing uh, here. <laughs> No, no, it's it's nineteen, it's early, sort of nineteen seventies um, 
fantasy blending with science fiction and multiversality was fundamental to that particular series. But uh, I find fewer and fewer people are aware of Elric of, uh, and his black sword and the concept of the uh, eternal champion. So, oh, well. <laughs> uh, well, you do it in the book, David. You, you look at, uh, I guess, the variety of theories that have emerged um, in terms of when we look at the idea of a multiverse, uh, because there are, I guess, not so much competing theories, but numerous theories that you even suggest um, the scientific community uh, suggests they could all be true. They don't necessarily compete with one another. So this is where things do get a little bit weird and a little bit complicated. But I think something that's worth um, pointing out early in the conversation is um, I probably had an assumption a few years ago that this stuff was very left field, kind of kooky science that uh, maybe a couple of, of fringe scientists were interested in, but on the whole, it, it didn't have any traction in I guess, mainstream science. But th this really is a, a, a belief that is, or oh, sorry, a theory that is widely explored, isn't it? It is widely explored and considered. And there is some struggle, I think, you know, as scientists look at the fundamental unpredictability of the quantum realm. And there's some struggle determining whether this is science at all. Um, there's some who argue that it's not because, you know, a fundamental axiom of science is the scientific method, and you have to have something that's testable, um, even if it seems. I mean, this as a as a speculative cosmology has a lot of purchase, um, and it explains a tremendous amount. But the challenge for science is that as of yet, we have no way to test its truth, um, and so for. Um, you know, for some, some scientists find this fascinating um, and others are skeptical that something that you can't apply the scientific method to is science. But so there's a, there's a tension there among folks, among the scientific community as I've encountered it. Um, one that has grown more substantial as the theory seems to have gained more popular purchase. Now, obviously, it's always handy in times like this to have someone on the podcast in Peter with a PhD in science. Obviously, Peter, your PhD was uh, in the biology side of things rather than physics. Um, but you can probably provide a bit of an interesting insight for us about the scientific community uh, when it comes to things such as this, when it comes to such groundbreakingly mind-bending um, possibilities. Uh, how does the scientific community generally engage in things like this? Uh, like any other community, uh, it, it dissolves into factions and uh, people start having fights. Um, I think the thing that has changed uh, the whole um, game or, or playing field is quantum physics. Quantum physics has opened, has, has, it's really challenged our paradigm of everything being isolated and separate. Because, you know, 100 years ago, people were looking for the building blocks of the universe, and they, they started with atoms and then electrons. And, but there was always these discrete, separate units that only interacted with each other in sort of linear, time-bound ways. And then quantum physics came along and showed that things were entangled and there was uncertainty and quantum physics opened us to the idea that there are sets of relationships that at first would seem to us to be impossible and it's it's challenge it's given it's given a whole um, new uh, area of, of exploration in terms of what prayer means and how we relate to each other but it's also said to the scientific community um, when you're looking at things at the macro level, it's all pretty predictable and Newtonian physics and gravity just sort of sorts it all out. Um, once you hit the subatomic world, it all becomes really weird and we can show that it's weird. So the scientific method has actually shown that it's weird. It's, it so, is weird. You can prove that it's weird. <laughs> you can prove that it's weird. And so the fact that now we prove that it's weird and there's stuff going on that we really couldn't have predicted before opens the door for us to ask questions. And that's the other thing about science is science is always about asking the next question and asking, so everything that we thought is settled, is it really as settled as it is? So 
good science opens up the realm to explore the idea of a multiverse because we are looking to explain, as you said at the beginning, Dom, we're looking to explain reality. And this reality is weird. And you know, when you don't have, and you don't have to get down to sort of subatomic level for it to become weird. Um, we've worked out that even light is weird. Light, light behaves like a particle and a wave, and how that happens, who knows, but it does, because we can show it does, we can prove it does. And that's just shocked all our linear concepts. So, you know, I think good science is actually open to the idea of the multiverse. Um, and and without, open to the weirdness of things. <laughs> and the weirdness of things without getting locked in onto one theory and saying, this is it. It's about just being open to the new. And then that, that you know, as I say, that opens, opens the whole gate to exploring how spirituality works, what prayer means in a connected universe, where we used to think of prayer as sort of telecommunication to a remote being. Now there's this sense in which if we hold a disposition, that is actually altering the fabric of the universe. Um, there's a whole lot of really exciting stuff that flows out of this work. And so I'm, I'm so glad that someone like David has taken the time to open open the portal if you like <laughs> right <laughs> so that we can actually begin to think about this sort of stuff and how it impacts on our life as people of faith and then what it means to be a person of faith uh, working out your existence in this weird world yeah yeah it's it's interesting as well peter i i remember from even my earliest memories of church in a, in a church that um, really did like to have a black and white view of the world, but still they would speak about a God beyond all knowledge and infinite beyond mm. our capacity to comprehend. And yet when we come across things, you know, like this theory of the multiverse, which feels beyond our capacity to comprehend, there is an instinctive reaction from many in the religious space to go, well, it can't be that. Can't we, be we, that. Meant, we meant impossible yeah. to comprehend, but in a way that we kind of can comprehend it, not something we actually <laughs> can't right. comprehend. So right. here we fight. We finally, we have a cosmology that, that stretches us and says that all of existence and the is infinitely more complex um, and delightfully more complex than we could ever have anticipated. And yet um, there's, there's resistance to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, great. Wait, isn't this exactly what we've been saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It's interesting, David. I remember one of my first conversations I ever had with, with Peter Cat five or six years ago, Peter, you made the comment to me that you felt like, the journey of faith was every something something along the lines of every meter you step forward reveals a hundred meters you now don't yet know. So it's almost mm. like the more you you journey, the more you realize you don't know. And I feel like this scientific exploration is a little bit similar. The more you learn, the more you realize it's a mystery. So actually, the person further along the journey, in a sense, is more humbled by mystery um, than, than the person who hasn't undertaken the journey yet. Yeah. I actually love that. And I don't know, I'm risking stealing your thunder, Dom, but when we talk about the whole, this is the delight of the new possibilities. I, I, there is one really favourite quote of yours, um, David, in the book that uh, that says um, that when you, when you start to consider the immense possibilities um, and the eternal possibilities that are there, it is like a dog let off the leash into an endless field of squirrels. <laughs> quantum branching squirrels, bubbling squirrels upon squirrels upon squirrels with the delight of new discovery present for sentient beings forever. And that doesn't seem such a bad thing. And I, I love that because there's also, you know, not only that sense of the incredible possibility and that tallies with that, with, you know, my sense of the abundance of God and the Christian sense of the abundance of God, um, but also the joy now, it's, it, the metaphor breaks down, of course, if you look at it from the squirrel's perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but from the dog's perspective, we get this endless opening up, you know, and I, I think um, you know, we're sort of left with some metaphors and, and that's kind of a good one, I think, to mm. get to the heart of what we're, what we're um, the, the excitement and possibility that we're talking about here. Mm, absolutely. Well, David, I'm, I'm curious, actually, on this front, before we delve into a, a couple of the specific areas of, of, of conversation on this, uh, what seems to be the biggest concern or fear um, around how the multiverse theory ties in with the Christian faith that 
that you have come across? Because I'm sure in the process of writing the book and since the book's been written, um, you've engaged in a number of conversations with people of faith who, who have expressed a, a variety of um, thoughts, curiosities, maybe uh, concerns, maybe some fear pops up. What are, what are the main fears that you've come across? Um, a lot more people would have to have read the book <laughs> for me to have encountered all of those fears. I, I think there's an obvious fear of the depth of the unknown, um, you know, that so much of faith is, for many, a, a thing of, of simple comfort. Um, and when you step out and say, well, faith is actually connecting you with something that on the one hand can be comforting, but on the other hand is infinitely complex and beyond us, a, a yawning chasm um, of, of God's creative energy. A lot of people encounter that and are, it doesn't give them this neat, simple, contained understanding that, and, and feel shaking. Um, to which I think anyone who you know, has read the Tanakh, anyone who's read the Torah or the prophets or the writings, it's like, well, yes, shaking, unsettling, overwhelming is kind of how our experience of God and the sense of the greatness of God's work is. There are places of comfort, sure, but the, the more you open yourself up, the more... Um, you know, encountering the Mysterium Tremens is, you know, it's not cozy. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Um, and uh, I think that's hard. I think for a lot of folks who prefer simple, um, which is an easy reaction to uh, an incredible, what can feel like a complicated, overwhelming life, um, struggling with suffering and uncertainty, um, telling someone, oh, here's some more uncertainty for you. Um, uh, there are reasons that there, there can be some, some pushback. To that. <laughs> um, uh, there's also the question among some folks, what's the relevance of this? I mean, you know, this is flaky at out in space and what does this mean for my day-to-day -day life? And I would say, well, how, how important is meaning and purpose and our place in the universe to you? And for a lot of folks, it's not which baffles me. I mean, that seems incredibly important to me still. Um, but, you know, some people just, that, that they just tune that out. It's like, well, this is, you know, what does this have to do with, with my work or my, or my prospering or my family? And you know, there can be resistance there too. And I, get, I understand that. Mm. I suppose there's also then the theological questions that come in about a faith that's centered on the, the Jesus story. And if we follow this idea out to its ends, that means that there's many, um, there's many timelines out there in which Jesus of Nazareth perhaps did not exist and none of that happened. And, um, and in, in those timelines, what does that mean for our faith? And, and what is the, and you know, I don't even like this phrase, but the idea of a one true faith or anything along those lines, um, is that theological resistance something you, um, you understand and relate to in that sense, David? I mean, I can certainly connect to it. I, I, I think it's easy to say, well, if, you know, if God's creative work extends beyond what we experience in our time and space, then what's the relevance outside of it? Um, and God's creative work is still God's creative work. And the, the message of Jesus and the fundamental goodness of the gospel remains extremely relevant to me right now. And I don't think, I don't think the core of the gospel, the idea that we are, you know, in relation to a gracious, abundant God, and that we are often challenged by our own selfishness, by our own, you know, if you want to get Augustinian about it, our own concupiscence, that we are required to repent. Well, then we have to be able to change. And then authentic change is only meaningful if we're free. And so it's, you know, even the most basic elements of Christian faith require the kind of reality that a multiverse suggests exists. And so I, I, 
I understand why there's resistance to it. Simplicity is easier. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think though, like, because I'm not a scientist, fascinated by scientists, but I don't have that science background. And so when I read the book, you know, what really struck me was what it, the ramifications for um, at the way we live. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, and I, I think it, the, this sense of how our um, aligning with the nature of Christ becomes uh, um, uh, even more weightier and the impact greater of the way we live, how we actually, our decisions to me seemed weightier and also uh, a sense of having a greater impact in that creation, um, ongoing creative process. And so, you know, people talk about scientists now becoming our mystics and our theologians. And I think it is true when you look at this, um, how that, that is the language that starts to evolve, you know, like the how, um, what, what is um, governing the way we live and what does the, what are the potentialities of every single little choice that we are making mm. suddenly, um, you know, that becomes, to me, it made it a lot more exciting and um, gave us back greater responsibility. Yeah, I wonder, mm. yeah, establishing, establishing probability, like saying this, the choice I am making has a potential impact, even the, even the subtlest choice, um, you know, choice of what tone you use when you're talking with your wife or a friend in a moment, like little, little tiny things can really, <laughs> really shape uh, your, the, the reality that manifests around you, um, which reinforces the need for grace, which reinforces the need to, um, to have ourselves shaped by this desire to live into that future that Jesus proclaimed. Uh, but it also shakes us loose from some of the darker sides of linear consequentialism, which is if I see a good goal, if, I, if my goal is good, then in this moment, I may take an evil action. Um, and I think I, my example in the book is the terrible president thought experiment. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad that didn't where, happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad it didn't happen. I'm so glad it didn't. Where the idea that you can, you know, you can see an obvious evil as instrumental towards something you think is good um, and tolerate an evil action or an evil choice because you're saying, well, eventually it'll be good. Well, in multiversality where outcomes are probable, um, you lose some of the justification for that because you could take a good action, you could take a positive action, and then maybe it doesn't have a good result. Um, I mean, my, it's, I don't think it's in this, in the book as I remember it, but I, I have a thought experiment I like, which is the, uh, um, it's, a micrometeorite conundrum, which, you know, if multiversality is true at every instant in the multiverse, there's a very small, very dense meteor hurtling through the atmosphere towards the back of my head at this very moment, if every probability. So um, I am going, I'm going, my head's going to explode in, an, in, in a functional infinity of universes in front of all of y'all in, in like half a second, um, which we hope doesn't happen in this one. Um, Video is rolling. So, you know. <laughs> Video's rolling. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, this, this one, you'd have, you'd have to make this a video podcast yeah. just for the views, I think, alone. Um, but the idea is, you know, the choices I make, the words I say have to matter in the right now. Um, there's nothing guaranteeing the outcome I intend. And so if I'm graceless now, if I'm cruel now, that, you know, it doesn't, there's no way to justify that. I have to take that end into the way I act now, um, which is, again, a very, um, I think the word is deontological. It's a, I have a duty to act in the right and to manifest the future that I want in this moment. Um, and as a committed Christian, that means I have to make every effort to manifest Christ's grace and love in everything I do and in every choice I make, knowing also that I'm relying on grace because I don't do that all the time. Um, so it, it reinforces both the goal, um, but also the importance of our action. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it marries so beautifully. I've been quoting Catherine of Siena a lot lately. Um, that line of hers that that heaven is it's heaven all the way to heaven because Jesus is the way, which others have trained. I think Richard Rohr has trained has um, adapted and said it's heaven all the way to heaven and hell all the way to hell. And in a multiverse perspective, um, it actually makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about the cho individual choices we and the ends do not justify the means. Um, with your with your imaginary terrible president, you know, the ends do not justify the means. Mm. The other the other thing I think is really helpful is that not only is your work saying that what we do matters in every millisecond, but it also knocks us off our sort of human-centered approach to the universe. Mm -hmm and make pushes us back to more a relational understanding and you know we've you know, even even 100 years ago people were asking the question um if we discover little martians on mars how does the gospel relate to them because you know we've we had made the story so much about humans and and played out on earth as if it was the center of the universe and the only stage of the universe um, i think your work helps us appreciate the more cosmological understanding you know that that the logos if you like the christos the sophia is active in all in ways that actually penetrate across multiverses and will play out in a way that uh, is not as human-centered as we like to think it is. And so we are, there's a lot of consequence for how we play out our lives, but there's also this amazing branching of the faith in almost like a fractal sort of way into different universes or multiverses um, because at its deepest understanding, the faith actually says, um, the Christ is a generative principle, um, creative principle, and that wonderful understanding of Sophia, the wisdom of God, um, Christos, as something that's working in the depths of being, rather than just played out in a sort of just on a on a, on a two-dimensional stage, if you like. So I, I think that's um, and then that pushes us in our time to understanding that the other creatures actually matter. And so it's not only our actions towards each other, but our actions toward the other creatures, that they are somehow part of the program. Um, it gives us some language to speak into the environmental crises that we face, that it's not just about us trying to survive, because a lot of the discourse about the climate crisis is about us surviving as human beings. Where it's, it's fundamentally anthropocentric. And I think absolutely. the, and, you know, I and think the, the challenge, I mean, challenge I have I, in my, uh, the book, again, I wrote after this is called Our Angry Eden, um, about the, uh, the world. Um, if any of you, have you read any Bill McKibben? Um, mm. He's a, uh, environmentalist, author, activist, um, and years ago I'd read a book of his called Earth, which is E-A-A-R-T-H, uh, which extends the idea that we're, we are creating a, host, a, a different hostile planet around us. Um, and my book touched on that, but one of the, I mean, talks about that at great length and about the, the role that Christian faith has in, uh, in allowing us to adapt to um, and respond morally to that crisis. But one challenge I have with the idea of climate justice is um, it's appropriate to think about the way that marginalized communities are being impacted in a way that uh, particularly um, the you know, folks in the equatorial region of the earth are going to be disproportionately impacted and the poor will be disproportionately impacted. But what tends to be forgotten is that the what we've offended here are those um aren't just other humans mm. um we're in the midst of a mass extinction unlike anything i mean as, as it's tracking i mean where it's like the mass extinction between the permian and the triassic um we are we are killing so many other of god's creatures and I am not unconvinced that they don't have some sort of voice and that justice as understood doesn't 
engage the suffering we've inflicted on those other living beings around us. Mm. Um, so it's easy, it's easy for Christianity to sort of, you know, for human beings, I don't think, I mean, I think Jesus's message goes deeper than just to persons of a, uh, you know, the homo sapiens sapiens persuasion. It's a, uh, mm. um, it's relevant more deeply than that. That's um, right. And if we call the other, you know, I, I, I'm inspired by the way St. Francis called the other creatures sisters and brothers. Because once you start having a familiar relationship with everything else, then you know, to, to trash the environment is to kill your mother. No, um, it's to kill, it's to harm. You know, I have, I live in a very, in an inner suburb of Washington, D.C., um, a dis little distance from where my congregation is located. And we've had an extinction event in this neighborhood. There were uh, chestnut oaks here when we moved in, just beautiful, heavily wooded, lovely canopy. Um, and they were, you know, every fifth tree. Um, they've all died in the last five years uh, because the shifts in climate, the, the colder colds, the extended periods of drought we've experienced, the, um, you know, have weakened them. And then they're, you know, the predators, the, the insects that naturally pursue them, just they're vulnerable, they've all died. Um, yeah. So our neighborhood is filled with death and I, I mourn their loss. I mean, they were part of the beauty of God's creation here in the place where we are. And that's, um, yeah, hmm. but that's a whole nother book. <laughs> well, but one of the ethical implications, and, and you touched on it a bit already, as, as did you, Sue, that I thought was really helpful in this sense is that when we have this idea of the one timeline, the singular timeline that we need to kind of course correct, we need to fix it up and make sure that we get there, then, then what ends up happening is people have a different idea of what that course correction looks like and are happy to, to you know, pay different costs to get there. So, for example, maybe I don't mind investing in a fossil fuel company if as a result of that I'm going to get money that will help this charity grow that I'm building things along those lines, um, you know, the ends justify the means and, and so it's worthwhile. Whereas in the multiverse idea where every single possible outcome exists, one where the charity grows, one where the charity fails, whatever, whatever might exist out there. And this isn't the one timeline I need to get right. The impetus immediately moves on to this current action. As you said, David, just what is this action? Is this action loving? Is this action just, is this action harmful in any way? And it's probably it's probably quite a, a contrary idea in a world which is very much focused on, you know, even our, our corporate culture is all about the idea of the grind. You know, you do the grind and then you enjoy. You the, the means to get where you want are unenjoyable um, to get to the good result at the end of the journey. So, I think that's is. Do you think that's one of the most liberating elements of of the idea of the the multiverse is that it actually um, frees us, liberates us from this idea that we can get where we need to get any way other than love, grace, and justice. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, it, it does free us from that, you know, that mechanistic consequentialism that underlies so much of modern culture, um, where you're perfectly, you know, you're perfectly willing to, uh, from childhood, stuff yourself into activities where you're just constantly, because, you know, you need to get, yeah, you need to get into the right preschool so you can get in to in the American system so that you can get into this so that you're oriented towards college, which you will crunch on because you need to get into the right grad school, which will get you the right job, which you have to keep pressing into. And, you know, you, you leave aside family and time for Sabbath and time for the, the graces and joys of life and this constant pressing striving. And at the end of that, um, what do you have? <laughs> I mean, what, you, what you have is, is you're old and you haven't done anything joyous with your life, even though your house around you is huge and you have lots, you know, at least it's US, you've got a nice giant inefficient SUV that you, you truck around to places and none of, none of that you've enjoyed. Um, the striving uh, to what end? It, I think it makes, it is liberating. Um, it's freeing. You understand that even, you know, that it's important to do the right action no matter what and understand the place of grace in all of that because who's to say what's the most perfect action? That's the other piece for me. Like, 
even if I am at my best, is, is the choice I've made the most perfect, the most good choice? And understanding that no, it probably isn't. Um, I can never get to that perfection because there's always going to be a perfection beyond that perfection. Um, it, um, it, it's releasing in the same way that the Apostle Paul was released when he read Romans and realized, you know, I don't have to do everything exactly right. <laughs> Doesn't free you from trying, but it, it sets you, it liberates you from the idea that my choice has to be 100% the, you know, you know, we don't, we don't easily get there. Mm. And that is you know, it's interesting. Sorry, in um, I'm just reminded of Babette's Feast here. There's that beautiful speech of General Lohengrin at the end of the movie Babette's Feast, the book by Isaac Dennison, um, where I, I know the, I know the movie. I have to, I have oh, to read yeah. the book. I've never yeah. read it. Um, yeah, just I mean, that incredible moment when he stands up and says, "We, you know, basically." And I wish I could remember it word for word, but basically, we think everything rides on these choices, you know, and that have we made the right or wrong choice. And um, he says, you, "There's that moment." that you arrive at where you realize that that which you have not chosen is given back to you as well um and he quotes psalms you know the mercy and righteousness have, have, have met together and um there was a glimpse in that and our brains struggle to wrap around it but there's it's like and that whole movie of course is about grace but you know there's a the there's a glimpse in that of the grace of our decisions being both important and yet not so and yet not everything depends on it because there are we are given back that which we don't choose as well somehow and i think from a multiverse perspective it's an interesting uh little little um you know text to return to and an image of that that great feast of abundance at the end of it all mm. absolutely it, it does lead us into and we've touched a bit on it already um david and you do explore it extensively in the book, but the idea of free will and, and where free will ties into all of this, because we're talking about making the right choice in the moment and, and you know, doing the, the most loving thing we can now. But if every possible outcome does exist in the multiverse, do we actually have any free will at all? Because technically, you know, I let's say I have to make a decision about what I'll have for lunch today. And I feel I have the free will to make that decision. But if I have made every other possible decision in other timelines, does that mean I actually have any free will at all? What, what, how do you how do you come at, at that sort of questioning? Um, I I see it. I mean, depending on which, and the book delves into different multiversal theories. Um, there are some that are just endless. Like here's a line, and here's a line, and here's a line, and everything remains linear. And what you end up is something a lot like uh, the. Uh, the horror that Nietzsche had at the concept of eternal return, where things just repeat and repeat and repeat, and there's slight variances, and it's. Um, I see us as as fundamentally free within that system, um, because only within a cosmology where you understand that there are possibilities for variant choices could freedom even exist as a concept. Um, and without the freedom to choose the good or not choose the good, um, the good is meaningless. Um, it, if you are forced into it, um, like uh, if you're forced into it in the same way that like Alex Delarge in Clockwork Orange can be forced to be good. Mm. Um, and unlike Kubrick's movie, the book, um, Burgess's book, really is very theological. Mm -hmm. um i mean it's 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 got some profound stuff in it plus if you've seen the movie the book is rougher than the movie <laughs> I mean, it's a hard movie to watch but the book is rough but it's a work of theology about the place of like where is where is freedom and if if a man can be forced to be moral through coercion is that really morality is that person moral at all it's uh yeah you have to have freedom or or moral choice is meaningless and you have to have freedom or the choice to follow Jesus is meaningless. The choice to repent and hear the good news, you know, what does that even mean? Mm. It does then lead into the conversation, I suppose, about um, predestination as well, which is an idea that's common in, in some Christian traditions. And 
um, without delving. As a Presbyterian, I can raise my hand to that. Yes. <laughs> well, without delving, without uh, without going too far down that rabbit hole, because that's probably three or four separate conversations in itself. What does how does the multiverse theory tie in with with that concept? Well, I mean, I think the the purpose of predestination. I mean, the reason that Calvin derives it from Augustine, the reason it comes out of theology is an affirmation of divine sovereignty and divine omniscience. It's affirming that. Um, that's its only purpose. Uh, if you have a single linear time and space and you're asserting that God can, is the creator of all of that, um, you have to have predestination, it's, it's necessary. And then, of course, that creates resonances, you know, good old double predestination, you know, that you have God creating beings that are doomed to be damned and they, they never really have any choice in the matter. Um, it, it's never been particularly coherent to me. I've, I've, I had found ways to adapt to it as a, as a way of thinking, but uh, moving from linear predestination to omnidestination, um, where God is the creative force behind all possibility, um, not only makes God larger, but it also makes choice meaningful. And it preserves divine sovereignty in a way that doesn't make God axiomatically monstrous. Um, you know, because if, uh, you know, if we look at our, at our time and space, um, there's a lot of horror in it. There are a lot of choices that human beings make that are brutal. It requires us to say the Holocaust was necessary. Um, the killing fields in Cambodia were necessary. Uh, that all of the choices that human beings have made, that, that slavery in the United States was a necessary thing because that's just part of the one linear timeline and human choice had nothing to do with it. Um, and human sinfulness and brokenness and self-servingness had oh that you know that's just all good um, and I have a lot of difficulty calling something that is not good good mm. um, understanding that it is you know we are permitted to make evil choices um, it's uh, yeah like you know, I think uh, like Leibniz had posited at one point that. You know, this was the best of all possible worlds, <laughs> uh, and I'm like, no, <laughs> mm -hmm. no. I mean, it, it's not hard to imagine. I mean, I appreciate your your creation of calculus there, but uh, um, this is there could be better ones than this. Um, mm. so his his writing it didn't make it into the book. I don't think. I think that's a later essay. Uh, but his, you know, Leibniz was actually sort of touching on multiversality there a little bit in his understanding of the nature of being. I guess the thing that the tension that I feel with all of this talk about free will, which is why this conversation has been fascinating me for some time, is that, well, yes, there is that element of we have that moment of choice. And then then there always the question for me appears, oh, but but did I really? Um, and I think it was was it Augustine who said, even when we turn, God is in the in the turning. Mm, and right. that that has been, you know, certainly I I, I find that so deeply true because I think there's that tension in you say you talk about choosing to follow Jesus way we're also being drawn by love though and mm -hmm. we have free will even as much as when we encounter real love we can deny it you know uh, and, and I, I want that's our free will extends to that much or say when we mystically get that glimpse of our own potential and the beauty of our own existence we have the free choice to deny it. But mm. I think we are being lured. I think what the, the thing that messes with, with total free will in my mind in some ways is that lure of God and the absolute beauty of God. You've got to deny that. And, uh, you know, that sense of where we're all, um, God is active and working within. Um, so uh, I don't think that reduces our freedom. I think it enhances it in many ways, but I think there that the, I guess it's like the deck stacked the deck is a little bit stacked here towards love and beauty and yes. grace and thank, thank goodness. I mean, love, yeah, love, love and beauty and grace are are fundamentally appealing, and yet there's a substantial part of us that strives for the opposite. Um, that that lusts and hunger that yeah. lusts and hungers for power. 
um, yes. that yep. and your that mythical wants, president, yeah. your mythical president yeah. embodies that. Mm -hmm. I, yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> does indeed. He to the point where it almost seems like he's the exact opposite thing of everything Jesus taught. It's a peculiar. <laughs> I, I wish we had a theological term for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but it is. It's it's a really interesting point because I think as well as we're sort of touching on the fact that you we have the ability to move against the very forces of reality if the very forces of reality are love justice inclusion expansion whatever in those senses we have the choice to move against these forces and i actually was thinking reading the book perhaps one of the movements against these forces we can make one of the perhaps more subtle movements against these forces that isn't so much power and hatred and greed but is that thing you spoke about at the beginning of the conversation david which is that lust for simplicity to simplify things and i recently was in a um Christian bookshop and I was walking up and down just looking at the titles there's some good stuff in there but as I'm looking at the titles so many of them were trying to simplify this mystery to something you can get in six points so it was the six ways to a better marriage it was God's plan for your bank account it was all, mm -hmm. all these sorts of ideas if, if you just follow this formula this vast mysterious creation will make sense and you'll be able to get out of it what you want and then you'll reach the utopian stage where everything is simple now. And I'm just, I'm wondering what we do because you mentioned, um, you know, the, the prophets, but you see this all through the, the Bible, this idea of people encountering the immensity of, of God. And um, I remember hearing the first time someone explained to me that the idea of God fearing didn't necessarily mean viewing God as a tyrant who does bad things and is a bit scary, but that feeling of being overwhelmed by the immensity and the eternity of things um, and not really knowing what to say in response, uh, that feels so central part of our tradition and so much what we're called into, yet there is this lust for simplicity, you know, boiling the thing down, summing the thing up. What do we do with that, um, that part of us that when we encounter something too complex, too deep, too immense, too much, we just go, no, 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 don't think about that. Um, it's the six plan and six step plan to a better marriage. Let's just focus on that instead. Yeah, it's it's a I mean, I, I see both sides of that. On the one hand, you know, the you know, God fearing is a vital part of of Christian faith and of many other faith traditions, um, including those that don't understand God in the same way that um, you know, that those of us who are disciples of Jesus would. It's the encounter with God is tremendous and shattering. Um, and I, the metaphor I tend to use for that, it's the difference between like that fear you feel when you're standing on the side of a chasm, um, you know, either the Grand Canyon if you're in the US or I, uh, a couple years back went to Norway and they have something there called the Kjærbolten um which is just a rock wedged in like a little rock bridge like it's the boulder stuffed between two cliff sides and you know norwegians just walk across it they take their picture it's it's a kilometer and a half down um so i can't get the i i, I can handle some heights but i had to sort of crawl on hands and knees up to the edge to peer over because I, I, you know, I get this little bit of vertigo doing that. The feeling of encountering God isn't just like that. It's like you're out in the air all of a sudden, and there's just vastness around you. Um, it's very difficult for us to cope with that. Um, and that is a legitimate, genuine encounter with God. I think in some ways, though, we are in our finitude allowed to simplify. Um because I, as a human being, you know, as a hominid who lives on this planet, who has, I mean, I've got hopefully still a fair number of functioning neurons, but I know they're not enough. Um, I can't take all of God in all of God's complexity. It'll tear me apart. I don't have that. Um, those moments of shattering, I think, are an important part of faith. But I wouldn't do anything. I mean, if I was always in God's presence in that way, we wouldn't be having that conversation. This conversation, I'd just be like, yeah, <laughs> I'd, there'd, be, there'd be more than I can handle. And, you know, I think one of the roles of faith in that encounter is to acknowledge and accept the infinite complexity, to acknowledge and engage with a love that extends beyond our own understanding 
but also to give us a framework that allows us to be in that encounter so that it doesn't completely destroy us. Um, and at least not until we set this body, this, you know, the frame of this life aside and can be unmediated. Um, I, it's one of the challenges of mysticism. Uh, mysticism can be very practical or it can be so overwhelmed in the presence of God and so absorbed into that relationship that certain actions aren't taken. Um, you know, if you're completely lost in God, what's your motivation for justice? What's your motivation for sharing compassion with other beings who aren't the divine presence right there in front of you? It can, there's a danger in the mystic path that you lose the importance of relationship to the immediate personal other you're an encounter with. Um, and I think if you've read any of the writings about the, you know, of the desert fathers and the and mothers in the early stages of the, the Christian experience, one of the most amazing things is how much they crave each other's company. I mean, you've got these, you know, hermits living out in the desert under the blasting sun. And uh, most of the book is writing about conversations they've had with one another. <laughs> it's like, um we need we need that balance so we're allowed the simple um i mean it's you know on the one hand you don't want to oversimplify it on the other hand sometimes yeah I, so there's, there's a tension there um i think it's a constructive dialectic i haven't fully worked out myself so yeah no i'm, I'm reminded of something a friend of mine who've had on the podcast before jim Shermer, uh, who is an ethics um lecturer and among many other things he described this as kind of like staring at the sun it's kind of this captivating thing that you you kind of are drawn by life comes from it but if you look for too long you you're gonna you know you're gonna go blind and you're gonna lose your, your vision that there's this sense where you almost can't stare straight at it for too long um but you also can't just build a, a house and live indoors all day every day so i suppose it is about finding the, the space of that tension um i am curious as we move to wrapping up the the conversation david one one thought that i did have about the the possible ramifications for the multiverse theories and what that could do for our faith is we live in a, a world and, and probably a religious system which largely in many cases, supports and emboldens privilege, supports and emboldens um, a world of, of injustice and inequality, um, you know, that this is the way it is, this is the way it is ordered. Whereas there is something beautifully humbling about the idea that the wealthiest person in our world today, in an, a, an alternate timeline, is, a you know, someone who has no money and is living on the street, dependent on, on love and support of others. And there is this sense when we can realize that, in a sense, any achievements, any status, any wealth that we have, in, a, in different scenarios, we may currently be living with or without them, them to extreme extents. And therefore, our job in every potential timeline is to, to care for the stranger, to care for the, you know, the, the outcast, in a sense, because that is us, if not here, in a really visceral way in another timeline. And so, in a sense, we're all reliant on each other. Um, if we want to be cared for that like that in that other timeline, we need to do that here for these people in a sense. Does that, I don't know if that thought makes any sense, but in terms of how it unpacks to a, a more radical compassion that we are absolutely dependent in every possible outcome on each other, that, that was just the thought that hit me. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to consider in, in our privilege that, you know, again, that there are other choices we could have made or there are other choices that, that could have been made in our past that, you know, didn't put us in a position of privilege or put us in a place where a person functionally identical to us is, is struggling if we're in a place of privilege or that relation is inverted. I think also the scale of the multiverse reinforces the irrelevance of the pursuit of power and the pursuit of wealth as it tends to be a goal. I mean, you'd think the scale of our space time would do that because it's, <laughs> it's gobsmackingly big already. Um, but once you say this is, you know, you know, we are uh, I mean, barely more than a subatomic particle as it is relative to this, this vastness. Mm. Uh, and I would, you would think that scale would would humble us and turn us more towards one another. But again, we get 
caught up in our mammonist systems or our systems of coercive power and and we forget um, and we let our actions be governed by those systems and their uh, peculiar impacts on the way we treat with one another. <laughs> also knocks us out of the idea that the way things are was inevitable. Uh, it reminds us that the way things are actually are the product of a whole bunch of choices and it didn't have to be this way. So cycles back to your, um, you know, the idea that this is the best possible world. Well, it, it isn't because if a whole bunch of other choices had been made, um, you know, we would have we would have started looking after the planet in the 1970s when we were first told that we needed to do something and we... Yeah and choices would have been made that meant that the killing fields didn't happen and choices would have been made that um way back in you know end of world war one or earlier that didn't make it easy for hitler to arise and or choices would have been made that acknowledge the fundamental humanity of mm. uh, of the cultures that we that yeah we moved into yeah, uh, colonization wouldn't have happened because we would have been open to something else yeah it would have had or or it would have happened as a relation that would have been less extractive and more yeah. about engaging and sharing the discoveries yeah. that um that you wouldn't have had it's certainly in the united states mm. well, even well, even <laughs> even even yeah i know i mean i can i can Australia, speak for my boy, oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah i know i know I, we, way, we, yeah. we well i don't know we we're each of us have our own uniquely unpleasant histories um, <laughs> but we're, that's right um, yeah. you know the problem, there, the problem there, is that so many people in our country think that it's not an unpleasant history they they think that that they think that we have created the best possible Australia and that the uh, First Nations people in a sense have got to suck it up and actually, and, and I've even heard people say, you know, they've got to be thankful that we came and, and made the world a better place for them. I mean, that's... Yeah, well, I mean, it would have been a better place. I mean, uh, certainly within, you know, the... Uh, when I was in seminary, um, there was a Choctaw Bible written by a Presbyterian that was right in front of my study carol uh and the the choctaw wanted to be part of the republic they saw the enlightenment principles they saw the and they're like this resonates with what we know to be true we would like to be citizens of it and they were driven west in the trail of tears and actually they the translator the presbyterian translator who wrote the scriptures that they ended up resonating to like this that we affirmed this tradition this is good um ended up abandoning uh you know going west with them or right. walking the trail of tears with them because it wasn't it was the only moral choice um and it wasn't like we didn't know what to do we just mm. uh, we just chose wrongly um and created where we are um uh, but that doesn't you know, every point in a multiverse allows you access, no matter how far you think you've fallen, you know, you can be well on that road to hell and change direction. Um, you can shift. There's no point at which that stops being true. Um, so, which is hopeful, I guess. <laughs> I certainly take some hope in it. Mm, absolutely yeah no definitely and and i do think um i remember a few years ago somebody in in the school job i did they asked me um they they came to me to see me in the office and i remember them asking me if there is some moment of epiphany or whatever i don't remember what they used but where after after death we have this moment of union reuniting and we can see everything and understand everything again what do you think it will be? And I sort of laughed at the question because I thought, you know, how do you begin to answer that? But, um, but what I said is the only thing I feel I know for sure is I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be underwhelmed. Um, and I think that's, that's something I got reading this, this book is that it's so, the answer is always more expansive, more complex, more immense, always so much bigger and broader than we could begin to imagine. And, um, and I think the something really beautiful you do highlight as we've touched on through the conversation, but all through the book is when you realize that that is the reality we're swimming in, that that is, you know, what we're moving through. It moves all of the impetus just to, to this moment. What is the most loving thing to do here and now? And, um, 
And that's that beautiful Thomas Merton quote that you've probably all seen that he wrote to an activist once saying, uh, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. <laughs> As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationship that saves everything. And um, and that quote from Merton stuck out to me when I finished your book was that sense of of so much of our energy is struggling for the right results. We've got to get this number of people on board. We've got to get these people thinking that way. We've got to get them to sign off on this new program. Whereas the, the book and the idea of the multiverse really beautifully, I think, um, releases us, uh, returns us just to, to this moment. Yeah, to this moment and the grace with the knowledge that there's always going to be more. Um, yeah. And that's the, you know, uh, I intersperse the chapters with C.S. Lewis quotes just because, you yeah. know, if if as a kid, I always felt that if for some reason I, you know, that, you know, don't let me die before I wake prayer didn't work. The place I wanted to wake up was Narnia. Oh. Um, and uh, the uh, the idea that Lewis has of, um, you know, always further up, always further in, there's always going to be more. You're in this incredibly beautiful place now, but now there's, there are beauties upon beauties upon perfections that extend um, infinitely. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I remember that blowing my mind when I was a, a youngling reading his stuff. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a good, a good hope to have that in the relation, in the moment, in the grace of this time, we can trust that there is yet more. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Well, the book is called Christ and the Multiverse, Following Jesus in Our Wild Infinite Creation. You do end uh, pretty much every chapter, David, with the words further up and further in um, as you continue the exploration, and that feels like a beautiful way to uh, to approach the this mystery we are swimming in. David, uh, I am very glad at any rate that this is the timeline in which you wrote the book and the timeline in which we were able to share a conversation about it <laughs> without anything cosmic uh, hitting you in the back of the head. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on the podcast today. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you for having me.